Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Auto Sport Podcast. We pay tribute to the great Ronnie Peterson, who lost his life 40 years ago this week. Forty years ago this week, on September 11th, 1978 to be precise, Grand Prix Racing lost one of its most thrilling drivers, Ronnie Peterson, the day after his massive accident at the start of the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. At the age of 34, Peterson was a 10-time Grand Prix winner, on his way to finishing second in the World Championship for the second time in his career, and the sideways Super Swede was justifiably regarded as the most exciting driver of his era, a great loss uh, when when news of his, his passing uh, got out. I, I'm your host, Ed Stewart, and joining me to mark this sad anniversary and also celebrate Ronnie Peterson's legend is uh, Autosport Magazine editor Kevin Turner. Now, you've been busying yourself recently, combing through Peterson's career to pick out his 10 best race drives recently, so you're, uh, you've been doing your revision, shall we say? Yes, it's been another one of those hours in the archive, find books and magazines, race reports, a bit of footage, uh, which is always helpful as well, um, to then come up with a shortlist, which is then always too long. To then get it down to ten, and then and then try and put it in some sort of order, which um, really I, I need to have deadlines, otherwise I'll just be tweaking it forever. 
<laughs> yeah, be stuck in, a, in, a, in an archive for the, for the rest of your days. Well, there's worse fates. But also joining me is, well, who else could we have but Nigel Roebuck, who, of course, not only saw Peter in action regularly, but also knew him off track. Well, before we get on to Ronnie as a driver, Nigel, what, what was he like out of the car? Um, quiet, relatively. I mean, he could be. He could, you know, he could have his sort of semi-rowdy moments, but that wasn't him. He was... He was, he was, he had a peaceful quality, Ronnie. He was, he was, and also uh, there was always a, a naivety about him, which he never lost. He, you know, in spite of years of dealing with Colin Chapman and whatever, he, 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 he was still pleasingly naive, you know, to, to the end. He was, uh, he was just a lovely, lovely bloke. You do often see people saying that he was pretty much the same at the end as he was when he first came into he was. Formula One in He was, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In fact, I mean, you're talking about Kevin picking out the 10 greatest races, Ronnie's 10 greatest races. There's one I would doubt he included, which I actually think is maybe the greatest single race I ever saw, which was uh, Monaco in 69, the Formula 3 race. And it was a, strictly a two-hander between himself and uh, and Rainer Wiesel, these two uh, young Swedes. Um, Wiesel, I think, was in a Chevron, Ronnie in his techno. And it was the most extraordinary race I've ever seen. I mean, of course, there were little cars, and this was pre-swimming pool Monaco, so overtaking was a little bit easier than it is, much easier than it is now. So overtaking was possible, and I have no idea how many times they swapped the lead in the course of that race. The, the most remarkable thing about it, actually, is that um, they, as far as I remember, they shared the uh, the fastest lap, and it was three seconds quicker than they'd gone in practice. <laughs> it was also quicker, or as quick as a couple of the Formula One cars at the Grand Prix, yeah. the ones at the back. And yeah. that's that's a Formula Three, so that's two categories down, which uh, is pretty uh, remarkable. Uh, absolutely. I mean, of course, they were lovely, nimble little cars, and so on. You could throw them around everywhere. Um, but I mean, three seconds with a one-liter Formula Three car. So well, that was purely three seconds they found in themselves. They were, I mean, they they uh, they were started from the front row, and then they went three seconds quicker than that. It was it was just an astonishing race. I think it was thirty laps, something like twenty-five, thirty laps, and it was just non-stop action. It was fantastic. When you did actually have it's sort of included in your feature because the you were picking out the ten ten best F one drives from Peterson, which obviously that's not included. In, but, yeah, no, no. But, but the F but the F three Monaco victory is there as a kind of honourable mention for outside F one. That's right, it's it's mentioned. But in yeah. fairness, I can't I can't claim uh, sort of any huge insight there because the reason that I looked that up in the first place was because of a piece that Nigel wrote at the end of last okay. year uh, where he mentioned it. So okay. that gave me a, a heads up to go and look it up in the uh, in the archive. It's always the fascinating thing, isn't it? Kind of discovering some of these races that, because it's the kind of thing you know, you know he won at Monaco, but the the manner Mm. of victory often for some of these races lost, and there's still plenty of races around the place. That's uh, well, the thing was in those days. I mean, the F3 race at Monaco was such a big deal. It really was. I mean, it was, uh, it was. I mean, all the team F1 team managers watched it, of course, um, and it just brought together all the best drivers from F3 from wherever, you know, for this this uh round the houses um event um and it was it was huge i mean formula three then was you know dare i say it a much bigger thing than it is now and that was where you look for the next generation of grand prix drivers yeah that's certainly not a controversial uh, <laughs> controversial claim it's uh things very very different now and it's uh you know i suppose the monaco three race it's kind of in the 90s it sort of disappeared oh, it, and, yeah um, well um, but, but but over a period of time it kind of fizzled it yeah. sort of lost its its uh its importance 
No, it's a great show. It's exactly the kind of thing, uh, thing you want to happen. Well, I guess the best place to start the main part of our discussion is is at the end. Get that out of the way. Given it's the anniversary of that dark day of Monza Nigel that, that led to Peterson's death, uh, that that is the log- maybe the logical place to start. You were there, and what, what do you recall of the chaos of that day and the 24 hours that followed? Because, of course, uh, Ronnie, although he was very badly injured, he was, in broad terms, okay. And it was, it was, he, he'd survived, uh, but then the absolutely, next day. Absolutely. I actually, uh, I, I spent, I always spent a fair amount of time uh, with those guys over a race weekend. But that weekend, particularly, I did. It was, in the, of course, the Lotus Motorhome. I mean, it was, it was genuinely a Winnebago sort of thing. It was a motor, a genuine motorhome. That was what they had in those days. Um, but I'd agreed uh, about a week before that, the likelihood was that Mario Andretti was going to win the championship. And so I'd been asked by this publisher to to do a book with him about his championship year. And so that was all agreed about a week before Monza. So I was in, I was with Mario a lot that weekend, you know, talking about it and when we were going to do the taping and where and so on. Um, and of course, Ronnie was in there, in there too. Um, they were, they were very, very close. Hard to believe actually in, in today's world because it is so unusual for racing drivers to be genuinely close friends, particularly teammates. But they, you know, they absolutely were. Um, so yeah, so I saw, you know, I saw a great deal of them that weekend. Um, I remember for in little stupid little things like, uh, you know, in, uh, on Saturday, I think it was, I think it was the final qualifying session. Uh, maybe it was the morning session. Ronnie coming into the pits unexpectedly after a couple of laps, um, because he found he had a lizard in the cockpit with him. <laughs> running around the inside of the car and so he stopped so the lizard had I to think be that's re- fair had, enough, had to it? be removed yeah um and it was a quiet weekend oddly enough i guess because of the tension of the championship i mean they, it was like uh it was like lewis and nico it, you know only two of them were, were in it the two lotus drivers they i mean nobody was going to was going to threaten their their uh, their uh, quest for the championship but it was going to be one or the other probably mario but it was still feasible that if if he retired or whatever and ronnie won then you know it could it could still in the end go ronnie's way so there was no animosity at all though there couldn't have been between those two but they were i do remember they were unusually quiet they were they weren't they weren't as uh chatty as as normal i guess they were both preoccupied with the uh you know, with the the sort of the enormity of the of the weekend, if you like, and I did after you know after it all was all over. I remember talking to Mario about it, and he just said, "Yeah, it was nothing. It was nothing bad. It was just something of the moment." You know, we were both aware of how big a deal this you know this weekend uh, this weekend was. And he had an accident, didn't he, in the seventy nine? Right, so which put him into the seventy eight. He, he had, a, the yeah, race. he did. He, that's right. He had an accident in the seventy nine. I mean, isn't that an amazing thought in itself? There was no spare 79. Mm. You know, this was the team dominating the world championship uh, and very late in the season. And still the spare car was a 78 from the previous year, which again is in today's world is, you know, hard to take in. Um, 
Yeah, so he was in the 78 for the uh, for the race. Um and race started and it was it was and of course there was this god awful chaotic accident, huge number of cars involved. Of course instantly stopped. Um and I remember in those days the old press box and Mon- Monza was on the other side of the track, far side of the track. Uh, and you actually could, which I always used to do, sit outside with a, with, you know, with a desk in front of me. I mean, it was certainly, it was, it was great from the point of view of sort of really feeling you, you know, you were, you were there. The cars, you weren't behind glass. You weren't in a press room. They were, they were right there in front of you. So it, it all happened in front of me, but of course it was, it was such bedlam. I mean, I, I couldn't for the life of me. Immediately afterwards, say, "Oh well, it was because Sanso did this and Sanso did that and all the rest of it." But I just went down to the pit lane, and everybody was out of their cars, uh, except, um, strangely enough, Gilles Villeneuve, who never got out of his car the whole time, never took his helmet off, never got out of his car, because he knew whatever it was wasn't good, and he just didn't want to know about it. You know, not until not before the restart, he didn't want to have that in his head. So he just sat there. But all the other drivers were out of their cars, and they were, of course, very animated. And uh, uh, it was a it was a it was a terrible scene. I mean, they, they, you know, uh, Ronnie was Ronnie was still on the track on a stretcher, um, and it was about the first race that Professor Sid Watkins came to. Um, as as you know, Bernie had hired him as Formula One's new sort of uh, doctor, if you like, in, you know the, the medical factotum. Um, and I remember all kinds of things about it. I mean, I remember, for instance, the police initially not letting Sid Watkins get anywhere near Ronnie, and it wasn't just Ronnie either, because initially, uh, I mean, Ronnie he was plainly badly hurt. He plainly damaged his legs very badly but he was conscious and he was talking um and initially the the big fear was for actually if it was for vittorio brambilla who'd had a a serious belt on the head from something and was uh was was he was unconscious for a while um and there were concerns for him ronnie was yes it was it was awful but you know he but he wasn't it wasn't like didn't appear to be life-threatening in any way and it must have been, I guess, the best part of two hours before the race was restarted. It was shortened to 40 laps. And when it finished, uh, in the end, I mean, Mario won on the road and Gilles was second. They had a, a great battle, the two of them. And then, then I think they were both penalized for uh, uh, leaving slightly early from the front row. Um, so in the end, Nicky and uh, John Watson were one, two in the Brabham Alphas. Um, but it was, it wasn't quite dark, but within half an hour of the finish, I remember the, the paddock was absolutely pitch black, completely pitch black and huge amount of stuff was nicked. You can imagine the Tifosi, <laughs> Tifosi came over the barriers as ever, uh, got into the paddock and at this time, you know, they, they were able to work under cover of darkness. So God knows what was staken. Anyway, uh, I was due to fly back that night, um, but that was obviously now out of the question, uh, you know. Apart from anything else, everything was running so late. 
and and there was so much to to go into. So that was the first thing everybody had to do was fix new flights for the following morning and and also ring hotels and say I'm coming back, you know, need tonight as well. So everybody did that. And then I remember going down to the um motorhome to the John Player, the Lotus motorhome. Um and there were only three or four people in there. Um uh, one of whom was Mario who of course had just become world champion. Uh and he was I remember he was sitting he was slumped in a in a in a in an armchair with a magnum of Mauditionon next to him unopened. Um and it was the saddest thing in a way because he couldn't celebrate because at that t- at that stage yeah ronnie's not critically hurt but he is and it and nobody knew really well is it bad or is it or is it worse than they're saying or and so one or two people drifted in and out and we were sort of trying to chat about he was sort of talking about his race with Gilles and how he'd enjoyed it and you know um I'd been told Gilles was a madman but you know he'd actually he couldn't get over how clean he was he was to race and I, I remember but he was obviously just trying to just talk about anything other than the, the shunt and then at about nine, I guess the phone there was a phone in the uh, in the motorhome and it rang and it was Sid Watkins calling from the hospital in Milan to to, to reassure Mario and he just said listen his legs are bad i won't say otherwise but uh but the vital signs are all good and um he's probably not going to be around for the first couple of races next year but otherwise mario open your champagne celebrate so he can't remember he come came back with a great huge smile on his face uh, you know open the champagne and uh um and then we just sort of drank a toast to uh to Ronnie and it often struck me actually what we'd never did was drink a toast to Mario's championship because it was so it was not it was far from my mind but it was also far from 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 Mario's mind too and then the next morning um i remember we so we flew back we flew back to Heathrow got off the airplane we were waiting by the the luggage carousel and one of the fleet street guys went over to use one of the payphones no mobiles of course then to call his office and um and he came back with this curious expression on his face and and he just said ronnie's died i remember i can hear that as if it honestly as if it was said a minute ago that when ronnie's died there was shock in his in his voice and you know shock for us too because we were that was just it's not well, what do you mean he's died he's broken his legs um but in point of fact what they'd what they'd done and i, I don't think anybody ever quite understood why they did this in the middle of the night they really would have thought the first hours the first days couple of days all you really concentrate on is keeping somebody who's had a pretty bad accident keeping him stable and for whatever reason in the middle of the night they set about working on his legs and what happened was that um in the course of their well they were operating some bone marrow escaped into his bloodstream and when it got to his heart it just stopped his heart 
and you know it's it, it really comes very high on the list of you know motor racing deaths that should not have happened and mario that morning went to the hospital see ronnie was met on the steps of the hospital by Emerson Fittipaldi, and he just had to take him on one side and say, Mario, I don't know how to tell you this, but he's gone. Uh, whereupon Mario eventually uh, left Milan, and um, and they went off to uh, Tarmina or somewhere like that. They they went. Uh, I know they went off for three or four days just to lose themselves. Because he knew if he flew back to the States right then, you know, as soon as they landed in New York or wherever, he was going to be uh, bombarded. And he just, you know, just didn't feel he could face that. And then I think it was um, two weeks later, he did the IndyCar race at Trenton and won. <laughs> well, I guess the whole circumstance of that must have made it ten times harder to understand. Because if you have a an accident of tremendous violence at least it's kind of making sense isn't it if it's like a, a veal nerve type accident it's it's all very it's it, that's kind of like par for the course but something like this where you have someone who is in terms of living well basically yeah, okay. absolutely and, and in fact it was it was reminiscent in a way of i remember uh at the osterreich ring in 75 when mark donahue had his accident well, he walked into the ambulance, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. I think, he, I think he did. I think he did. I remember that um, I'd gone to that race with Chris Amon and was actually that weekend driving for Ensign for the first time. And the Ensign pit was next to the Penske pit. And I remember Mark was brought to the Penske pit on a stretcher. The stretcher was put down on the ground in front of the pit. It was there for, you know some minutes and and he was mark was talking i mean i heard him talking mario immediately of course went over to speak to him and i, I remember they you know i remember their conversation and then um you know various people arrived to uh you know to to talk to him danny helm and so on um but on that occasion you know what they did they then carried the stretcher over the track over the barrier and to the other side of the track put him in a helicopter uh to uh take him to the hospital in Graz and um, uh, and in fact uh, you know as Sid Watkins who was then had not yet then arrived later said to me you know the one thing you never never do anybody who's had a, a serious bang on the head is you don't you never subject them to altitude but of course they had to the altitude because where the weather track is you know there are mountains all the way around it and, which had to be gone over but in that respect it was similar to the to ronnie's accident in that both i saw and heard saw on a stretcher uh alive and awake and talking um and then uh as it was donna who would think died two days later and ronnie whatever uh 12 hours later something like that it, it was a it was a it was just a desperate weekend everything about it was it was it was you know, one of those, I'm afraid, one of those weekends for you, you remember, never forget for all the wrong reasons. Fortunately, the kind of weekend you rarely have nowadays. Nowadays, well, almost never. No, no. I mean, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I did kind of, I never got used to it, but it was, it was always a shock, but it was somehow, it wasn't a surprise. 
You know, the man. The first year I was doing this, I went to two memorial services: Rodriguez and uh, and Sifford. So it was really a. Ma- I think people were still very much of a mindset that, well, of course it's dangerous. You know, it always has been. It always will will be. How can it not be? Um, I mean, by the time of these two accidents with Donahue and uh, and Peterson, of course, Jackie Stewart had been very, very active on, on improving safety for, you know, for quite a long time. And it had improved hugely. Um, but uh, I don't know. You look at, I remember the wreckage of Ronnie's car after the accident. I mean, and essentially, you know, the front of the car was just gone. There was, there was not really anything forward of the cockpit. So uh, they had made a lot of progress, but there was still so far to go. So, yeah, that was just how things were. Yeah, you're pre-carbon tub then, aren't you? Because now with a carbon he, he, tub, you uh, wouldn't uh, have had anything coming no, no, into no. the cockpit at all. No, absolutely. Yeah, and of course the other thing that really strikes you is I was watching some of the footage of it and just the the general chaos after the crash. There's just people everywhere on the oh, track, it was, and but it was bedlam. It just seems absolutely madness. Obviously, you had James Hunt was key to yeah key to rescuing. I think Regazzoni was involved in that as well. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's just. It, it's astonishing that you, you kind of have the chaos and the savagery of the accident mm. and then it's just like extended for oh it, it, what it, feels it, like a very long time it really was yeah it really was um and in fact the other accident i remember like that was the awful accident at barcelona in, in 71 in um 75 with you know when stomlin's wing broke and the car went over the barrier into the into the into the crowd and that was the same that was complete chaos the Guardia Civil, you know, with their batons out and just essentially lashing out at, because the spectators immediately flooded over the barriers mm-hmm. and what when they stopped the race. Uh, it was just, yeah, just chaos. And, Mon- and Monza was very much like that. Yeah, there's definitely some footage of some unhelpful yeah. police involvement. Well, as I say, the, the fact that they actively tried to stop Sid Watkins, you know, getting to the injured, uh, the injured drivers. Um, but of course, in a way, that that in itself was new to have a Formula for Formula One to have its own resident doctor at every race. So Sid was very new on the scene. Um, you know, a few years later, of course, you know that could never have happened because he was so well known. But uh, but then he wasn't. Um, so no, just awful. Well, seeing as we've uh, gone over the end in in some detail, let's look at the, the slightly happier times when he was when he was racing. Like Kev, with with Peterson, I don't think there's any doubt he was one of the quickest Grand Prix drivers there's ever been. Certainly one of the stars of his of his time. But he's an interesting driver to look at. He didn't win the championship. He was in contention for championships by dint of his, his teammate won championships twice. And had things gone differently, it might have been different. But there's a saying in football about somebody being a a scorer of great goals rather than a great goal scorer. As in, when you do score, they're they're brilliant. They're highlights, real ones. They're, they're stunningly good, but you don't necessarily get thirty a season. So, with Peterson, can you apply that to him that he was a a winner of great races rather than a great race winner? Probably to a degree, but you also do have to factor in a bit some of the reliability. So, nineteen seventy three, uh, yeah, he and the Lotus seventy two were the quickest combination. I think Jackie Stewart was probably still the best driver of the season because of the all-round game but had the Lotus hold, held together more often such as the Spanish Grand Prix when he was well down the road then he might might still have 
have won the championship or at least been in contention going to those last races. Where well, he was, he was the fastest driver in the fastest cars in nine yeah, poles, I think. Which, he had which these days would normally be enough to win you a, win you a championship. Um, on the other hand, when I was going through even his, some of his outstanding races, there's quite often drama along the way where he's had a moment or he's locked up or he's had a spin or something and he's battling back from it. So he's one of these people that's always got drama. And I think Stuart has said himself, that's not really the way you win world championships. You know, Jackie was very good at not having that. So I think that's probably why Stuart does still stand above that particular era. You know, an era where you've got a lot of you know, Cosworth engines, Hewland gearboxes, car, quite a few different marks that could win and yet his stats are way ahead of everyone else's because he's consistently there so it's, it's, there's probably an element of truth with, with Ronnie but that's exactly why you want someone like that in your on the grid isn't it absolutely I think the, the thing we're talking about 73 um, you, I, you're right I mean I think Ronnie and the 72 were the, you know, the fastest combination that year um, but actually not quite as quick but not far off was Emerson in the other Lotus and of course, what they did they, over the season, they you know they they just took points off each other. Well, Ronnie had a terrible and start to the year, didn't he? He did. He didn't win a race to France. luck at the end. No, well, I, don't, right. I don't think Peterson scored in the first five races. Yeah, that's so. right. And he finally won at Ricard, I think, didn't he? Um, uh, ironically, after waving Mo through and Mo and Jody Schecht to then yeah, that's right. Ronnie won that's that right. Because because Peterson was he was the clear number two that year, wasn't he? He was bought in. He'd, he'd had three years at March. Yeah, I guess. Yes, he was. But I mean, he, he, he did quite quickly assert himself as, you know, albeit not by a huge amount, but the quicker of the two. And it, and it, of course, it had been very much Emerson's team when, uh, you know, when, uh, when Ronnie arrived. But it was a little bit like Mansell and Piquet in 86, uh, Williams taking points off each other all season and, and, and Prost, you know, just Prost winning the championship. Um, Which I think is another example of the the, the best man winning the season. Uh, exactly right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, it seems that so prodigious was Peterson's speed that year that basically forced Emerson out, didn't it? That it seemed to be after Monza, there was a bit of a well falling out. I mean, again, this is extraordinary looking back on it. I mean, when, well, I remember when we, we got to Monza. I mean, I mean, uh, Emerson was still very much in contention for the championship, and Ronnie really wasn't because, as you say. He, he, the early part of his season, there, you know, there hadn't been many points. Um, from mid-season on, he, he was he, he was finishing well everywhere, but but he was a long way behind Emerson on points. So Emerson could still win the championship, had a good shot at it. And and I remember watching that race and just assuming Ronnie was leading and Emerson was second, and I just assumed that you know, getting into the late laps, you know, Ronnie would get the message from Chapman to. Uh, to move over, and it never came. Yeah, uh, and Emerson, he was never em- given the order, was he? He never was. he was waiting for he it. He never was. And, 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 of course, Emerson was incensed uh, by that, by that, you know, that day. Um, so uh, that probably weighed quite heavily in his, uh, in his decision to go to McLaren. I think it was a pretty financially, it was a pretty good offer as well to go to McLaren. So there was that too. Hmm. And of course, I, mean, I think seventy three is the year that stands out as the year you can make the strongest case that he could have been could have been champion. Although he was only third in the championship, but he'd already finished second in the championship in his first year in the March, which is an interesting year seventy one because yep. the March team is still quite new as a the constructor. It was 
it, you know, it wasn't a top team by any stretch of the imagination, but he managed to have this run of second places yeah. and, and finish second in the championship in a, in a car that probably wasn't well, it was probably well built to have good days rather than a good year, shall we say. It was seventh fastest on our super times, says which all, is it? pretty <laughs> remarkable. And he was only the 10th fastest driver on pure pace and finished second in the championship, which is kind of not what you expect from a rookie. You sort of expect it the way around, don't you? But he was consistent enough to score, yeah, score those points and podiums. Yeah, I mean, you know, consistent is never the first word that would come into my mind with no, exactly. running. Um, so, I mean, he, I mean, you, you're right. This run of second places, uh, I mean, that was what was eventually started to haunt him. It was, you know, well, am I ever going to actually? Is it, am I ever going to win one? You know, uh, that was that did start to build up a bit. But he was very quick in 71. I know he didn't win a race, but I mean, he, for, for instance, only lost Monza by about a foot, mm. uh, you know, to Peter Gethin. Um, so he'd certainly well and truly marked his card by the end of that season. Everybody knew what, you know, just how quick he was. It's surprising in a way that he wasn't picked up by Lotus or, or somebody, you know, earlier than, uh, earlier than he was. Well, Chapman wanted him early, didn't he? But he stuck to his... Because Ronnie was... I get the impression he was a very well, honourable guy. He, he, well, he his, was. He was. And he liked the March environment, didn't he? Even though they said to him, look, actually, we can't give you the, the kit you need. Yeah, he did. He got on very well with with uh, Robin Hurd. And uh, and actually, I mean, you know, I, Max Mosley doesn't get dewy-eyed about much. But uh, the one driver who uh, plainly... Max really liked. Well, I mean, he's to this day won't have a word said against him, you know, more than uh, you know, more than anybody, more than anybody else. But he was, yeah. I mean, he was he was absolutely honourable. He, um, if I can just take you back for a second to to seventy eight, just before the uh, just before his death, just before his accident, he um, that was a that was a very interesting season because. He, when he joined Lotus that, that for 78, I mean, he was absolutely not in favour. He was not in fashion at all. He'd had, he, he'd had, well, he was 75. He was still with Lotus, but they were still running the 72 and it was nowhere and he didn't win a race. And 76, he eventually left Lotus quite early in the season and went back to March. I think he won at Monza that year and that was his lot. And then the worst move of all, probably seventy-seven, was to go to Tyrrell with the six-wheeler, which which he hated from the start. Never never got on with at all, and was usually blown away by Patrick Depaille, his teammate. So by the end of seventy-seven, he wasn't looking in. He wasn't exactly in great demand, um, and then he, he a long-time personal sponsor he'd had all through his career. This Italian count, Count Zanon, um, said to him, well, why don't we see about, would, might it be possible to go back to Lotus? Because uh, Gunnar Nielsen had left to uh, to go to uh, work for Jackie Oliver. And um, might be a chance there. And so Zanon spoke to Chapman and, you know the right numbers were mentioned, and Colin found himself able to uh, accommodate Ronnie again. 
And Mario was not pleased. Mario was not pleased at all because he'd nearly won the championship in 77, won more races than anybody else. Um, but I can remember him growling, tell me where it's written, we need two stars in this team. <laughs> anyway. But important fact, I mean, Ronnie, because Ronnie was the guy he was, I mean, they, 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 they fundamentally were friends and that friendship just deepened through that year. But by the end of it... Um, Mario had very much the upper hand in the first half of 78. He'd done the development on the car, and that was the whole point. You see, Ronnie, for all his genius, and I think there was genius in Ronnie's driving, he was the most hopeless sorter <laughs> of a car there ever was. He was completely clueless, and he never got any better. There's a great, so there's a great line that Marcus Simmons, who's done a piece on Ronnie for the magazine this week, has spoken to Tim Schenken about that when they were sharing the Ferrari oh, sports yeah. car race. He's got this great line. He's basically the first time, one of the first races they were at, Ronnie jumped in the car, went out first and did this incredible lap time. And Tim jumped in the car, went out, this is terrible, and sorted it out, went out. And obviously he went quite a lot quicker. And he said, Christ, Ronnie's really going to blow me away now. Hand it back to him. And Ronnie went no quicker than he got when the car was terrible to start with. That, he just he just did the same lap time whatever you did with the car well he did I mean Chapman used to say you trying to have a conversation with Ronnie about what the car's doing and he'd say Ronnie would just say something like oh it's sliding a bit and um, well where front rear well not sure really and he said and we and sometimes we'd change the car really fundamentally you know and he'd as you say, do, they do exactly the same the same times. And he said he would just drive you. He said, I can remember there were times I could feel the veins in my forehead starting to thump with <laughs> frustration. And he said, and then of course, five minutes later, he'd go and put it on pole. So <laughs> it was all forgotten. So do you think it's not a coincidence then that his best seasons in terms of wins were when he had a, t a teammate who was perhaps technically, so with Emo in 73 and then with Mario in 78 was technically better and could get the car into the ballpark and then he could just drive it um uh, might be an element of that um i mean i'm i mean i'm tempted to say those those two seasons 73 with the 72 and then 78 with the 79 they were the best cars he i mean he, each year of those two years he had the best car that was the thing to have and that was really the, those are only the two seasons when he ever did have the best car um but I think what, what's interesting was that he, Mario, as I say, dominated the first half of 78. But in the second half, Ronnie was, there were, there were times when you saw Ronnie could walk this. If he, if he, if he, if he hadn't given his word that he wouldn't, he could, he could disappear today. Two or three times that happened. But he'd gone back to Lotus, um, very much on the understanding. Chapman said to him, listen, this is Mario's year, as far as we're concerned. He should have won it last year, and he didn't quite. So, uh, you must understand, if you're coming back to Lotus, that's fine, but it's, this is Mario's year, and so in normal circumstances, you know, you won't beat him. And Ronnie said, yeah, fine, okay, I can, I can, I can, I can live with that, you know, because, because Ronnie was just so keen to come back to a competitive, uh, team, but but the second half of the year, it was looking more and more apparent that what Ronnie could do if he had, you know, if he had free reign. So that was was why he, in the end, um, decided. Then the offer started coming in, 
and he had an offer from McLaren for 79, which he accepted. But you see, but I remember at, at Zandvoort that year, I'd heard all these rumors that I think he's, you know, he looks like McLaren. He's the, and and I, I spoke to him on, uh, it was race morning actually at Zandvoort. And again, it's just an indication of how times have changed because when today no driver would talk to you like this. And he just said, well, uh, do you promise you won't write it? And I said, I promise I won't write it, Ronnie. But he said, okay, well, I've signed for McLaren. And Mario knows. And uh, but I, I said, well, when's it going to be announced? He said, um, don't know. They haven't said. I, I, but he said, but uh, I'll try and let you know just before they do it so you can. So I said, fine. And then I said to him, you know, one of the other drivers, I won't say who it was, said to me the day before, well, you know, Ronnie's leaving, isn't he? So he should just forget about his deal with Chapman and his promise to Mario and just go for it. And, uh, and I put it to Ronnie, and he was absolutely appalled. And he just said, Jesus, you know, I gave my word. And if I break it now, what will, you know, who will ever trust me? So there were different times. Mm. It's one of those great debates, though, isn't it? Do you think that given Mario's head, would Ronnie have been able to overturn Mario's advantage if they had just been allowed to race? Or do you think Mario would have perhaps played it a bit differently on the season, I, season running? I sort of doubt it because... Some of the races in the first half of 79, um, 78, um, frankly, you know, Mario was just sort of on his own. Mario, Ronnie wasn't really that that uh, that near to him. And, and the other thing about Ronnie was he, he said, listen, Mario deserves the championship. That car is the car it is because of him. Mm. <laughs> He's done all the sorting. And quite often he used to copy Mario's settings in the end, for want of anything else, really. And uh, I remember saying once to Mario, doesn't it bother you, you know, that he's, you do all the work and you get the car, you get the setup perfect, and then he just copies your settings. And he said, no, no, he said, those settings are perfect for me. Doesn't mean they're perfect for him. If he, if he wants, if he wants them, fine, you know, it's not a problem for me, but, you know, I've got the car perfect for me, and if it suits him, well, it suits him. It is interesting that, that Peterson seems to be a driver who, for all his success, he never quite got into the right team for him at the right time, shall we say, as well, because he clearly didn't, he wasn't a huge fan of, of the way Chapman ran at Lotus. Yeah, he had his great success there. March, he was clearly at home at, but he was never really a, able to run as a, yeah. as a top Grand Prix team. And of course, had he, had he lived, McLaren wasn't the place to be in, in 79. Absolutely and wasn't. No, no. Even if he'd not gone there right. and he'd stayed at Lotus, Lotus wasn't the place to be in 79 either because absolutely. the ground effect revolution was yeah, just sure. changing everything. Yes, so it was. It's yeah. always, it's always, you know, it's, it's very difficult to say what might have been, but he could easily have had four or five years at that level racing. I don't know if you have any feel, Nigel. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you're right. You, you, you are right. I mean, I mean, in 78, you know, Williams was sort of kind of, the Williams Grand Prix engineering was a, in itself a, a sort of new entity. Um, and they had a pretty good car that year with the 06 with Jones driving it. But no one could have foreseen that 07 was going to be the car it was, suddenly the class of the field. Um, you know, I don't suppose Ronnie gave much thought to going to Williams for 1979. <laughs> He probably wasn't probably no, not even uh, had an offer. Yeah, that would have been. A, but a, that a would have been. That, but that would have been the place to go had he been known. As you say, you know, he would have gone to McLaren, and McLaren in '79 were nowhere. The interesting question about him, I guess, as well, is 
was the was the technology of Grand Prix cars moving away from a drive like like Peterson? Obviously, we in, a, in, a, in our mind's eye, he was sideways every corner, you know, which worked very well on the on the tyres of, of the days. But I guess what was it, seventy seven? when radial tyres started to come in, so moving away from cross-plies, yeah. slip angles weren't yeah. the same. And even during his career, we'd had the, the move on to slick tyres, yeah. etc. And then as ground effects, the cars became more extreme. And obviously Absolutely. between the, the Lotus 79, well, the 78 was a ground effect car as well. It just it wasn't quite so successful. You had a Lotus 78, Lotus 79, and then Williams. And, you know, the, the pace of development through, through that period. Would he have got on with those? those cars i think he, he probably would have i mean I'm, no reason to think he wouldn't have been super quick but he uh you know you think of the immortal picture of Eamon at alton park in 68 the, the sort of everybody the picture everybody everybody can instantly see in their mind's eyes like fangio and the 250f at rouen um and of course that's a sight we never see now and it's a sight anybody with half a brain seriously misses because you you know you didn't need overtaking every nine seconds if you could watch that all day, but of course that obviously was going to disappear. I mean, they had cross ply tires and they didn't have much downforce, so you you know you could drive a car that way, and uh, and it was also a quick way of doing it. It wasn't you know you get sideways for a half a second these days. You know it's a catastrophe, time lost. It's, but, it's funny if you were to compare him to a to a modern driver. Ironically, I'd, I'd sort of go towards Alonso for the simple reason that Alonso, as you've seen, Nigel, he does rely on when he commits to a corner on being able to sort it out when it gets out of shape. He's not, yeah, absolutely. He, you know, it's very hard to see that because it's a much smaller window. But <clears throat> yeah. there's a bit of that. It's like, right, I'm going to chuck this car into the corner and I'll be able to sort it out, whatever, whatever it can do. And there's only some drivers that can do yeah, that no, with any true. degree of consistency. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I think. Um, um, yeah, you are right. I mean, I think I think Alonso is adept at driving around problems, and, and Ron- <laughs> a very good job in recent years. Well, yes, absolutely. But you think of the last year of Ferrari when there was a terrible, terrible car, the first hybrid Ferrari. Uh, but you know, still he went round the outside of Vettel at um, where was it? At Cops, wasn't it? Uh, so. He, you know he can do things like that whereas that year Kimi was absolutely nowhere so really that just confirmed Kimi is not a guy to have with you when you've got a, a you know a terrible car mm. and Ronnie yeah I mean Ronnie he just he just had so much natural ability um I mean Mario always used to say you know Ronnie wouldn't know a well set up car if he bumped into it <laughs> And it's true, but he, he just said, okay, well, this is... And he always used to mumble, yeah, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right, however it was. And then he would just cope, you know, he would just, he would just drive around it. Um, and in some ways, in that respect, I think very similar to Jochen Rin. I think Jochen was better at setup than Ronnie ever was. Um, but fundamentally, you know, again, it was a, a genius in just sort of, okay, this is what the car's doing, so... How do I compensate? Well, I do this. And just, you know, instinctively. And I think those attributes would apply whatever the, the rules. I think the top the top drivers in any era, I can't think of a time where you've had a rule change or a big technical revolution and then somebody, one of the top guys, isn't one of the top guys anymore. Top guys tend to be... Sometimes yeah. the second tier guys get can get... Yeah, it sort of can mix it up a bit, but normally the top guys are the top guys, aren't they? And they just 
they will go wherever the cars go and what, what's needed. That's why they're the top ones. So I, I imagine that Ronnie probably would have been able to do that. But I do doubt whether he'd have found himself in a competitive car. You know, the odd win here or there maybe rather than anything more. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe so. I, one thing I'm absolutely sure of is uh, he certainly wouldn't have enjoyed it as much because uh, it, it, was, it was odd, really. He, he, was such, um, he was such a quiet, gentle soul. Um, but put him in a racing car, and Jesus, you know, it, was, it suddenly became such a flamboyant. Uh, you know, you can watch. You could watch Ronnie going through the old woodcut all day long. You know, with the tail out, 165 miles an hour, lap after lap, and just teetering on the edge. And uh, I think if we miss anything today, I think it's that is is that teetering on the edge thing. Because they are glued to the ground, okay, when they go, they bang, they're gone, and it's very sudden. Um, but to see a Peterson or a Rint or a Villeneuve uh, going through a corner like that, absolutely on the edge, you know, just not quite spinning, beginning to spin, that was, that was really something. Because you just watched that, and you thought, in a thousand years, I couldn't do that. So... Uh, I don't think Ronnie would have got huge pleasure out of um, brute downforce because um, I think he was, you know, he would, I would classify him as a sort of artist racing driver. Which, and, and I think to have that kind of reputation and to made that mark, that's what makes a driver who hasn't won a championship elevates above absolutely right. a, a number of those who, yeah. who have. Sterling's the classic example, you know, the artist racing driver never be another like him um yeah yes i i, I think i mean it's interesting you know Jochen rent hated wings wings came in when Jochen was racing and he from the outset he hated them hated the whole idea of downforce because he thought it just took away from the delicacy of the uh you know what the driver was doing well, shall we, Kev, move on and look at some of his races, and then we can we can get you to run through your go for it. Uh, your uh, Ronnie Peterson ten best races, and, and Nigel can maybe shout you down a bit as well and explain. Yeah, to Nigel you. can tell me that it's a bit the wrong ones. Let's <laughs> he'll have sure, a... I'm sure I will. <laughs> oh, some of this is based do. on Nigel's report, so. Uh... Well, there we go, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> well, do, well, do you want to do you want to run, take us take us from ten? What you've got? Seventy three French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard, your number ten. Yeah, that was partly because of the breakthrough win, as Nigel was just mentioning, really, because he'd, he'd sort of been so close so many times before then. Um, and he'd it, basically, that's that's a race that Jody Schechter fans would perhaps remember best because he was one of his first Grand Prix in the M23. And he led, and, and but he had a uh, top line, a straight line speed advantage, and Ronnie couldn't get past. One of the reasons I put it in the list as well is because he then. You know, to show that he was thinking about the race, he wasn't always just oh, flat out sideways all the time. Waved Mo through and said, "Well, okay, you have a go and see what happens." And he actually got the he got the dividends of that because Mo then made a fairly uncharacteristic error. Actually, I don't think Mo was known as a particular crasher or anything. No. Put his nose in and 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 Jody wasn't having it, and they crashed and uh, and Ronnie came through and actually won by miles because I think the other the Tyrrells had gone by then. Um, so it was a sort of off the sort of the monkey off the back win, I think, is why that one's in there. Uh, next one, you got ninth. You got seventy four Monaco. This is this is uh, one of those early errors. So I think he was challenging one of the Ferraris early on and made an error, and then actually managed to overtake people. Which I think every time, any time people overtake other competitive cars at Monaco, that does got to be elevated somewhere. Um, 
the reason it's not higher is he well partly because it, I think it was his own error early on, but also because he then did require Nicky Lauder to retire. You know, Lauder had it in the you know, Lauder was doing the everything that Ronnie isn't really sort of quietly efficiently just winning the race and the, the Ferrari broke on him and, mm-hmm. and and Ronnie got the win. But of course, the Lotus seventy two was old by then, four years old already. And he'd already had the, the the early part of the season with the Lotus 76, which they just could not get to work. That's so, probably one of the least remembered Lotuses, isn't it? You, you know, it, it's one of those ones that when you hear the tight number for a moment, you think, was, that, was there actually a 76? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, so then they're not, the number eight is the 76 Italian Grand Prix. Um, so that's obviously, obviously gone back to March. And the 761, the big weakness, because effectively it's an F2 car with the DFV strapped in the back. Mm-hmm. So it would overheat the tyres and the brakes. Um, but um, yeah, Ronnie was always good at Monza. Um, he and was, he, and uh, he, yeah, it was ironic that that was where it all ended. Yes, as you say, he was, he was always good at Monza. Well, all, all, always good there. Um, in fact, I think there were. Did I put all three in the end? So you could the, obviously there were seventy three when he held off Mo, seventy four when he held off Mo, and then seventy six when he got through into the lead and expected not to win because of the brakes. But then there were showers of just sprinkles of rain here and there. And I think both Ronnie and Robin Hurd said afterwards, well, we we wouldn't have won that race without the sprinkling of rain. So um, and it's quite a memorable one. And then the opposite to that is, is seven, 74 Canada, um, which is, is one I have to shout out to Alan Henry for his, his book that he did with Ronnie, um, because it was one of those where he started 10th and, you know, he sort of didn't feature for quite a long time, but he charged through. And uh, and he, he clashed with I think Jock and Mass while coming through, and um, it meant that he had incredible lift on the, the front of the car, but just carried on anyway. And I think even Ronnie said that was a pretty interesting race <laughs> with the front end trying to take off like a dragster all the time. And he came through, but he only narrowly missed out on second place. So that's quite a that must have been quite something to watch. I would have thought a charge through the field from from, from Ronnie. Number six, you got seventy eight Belgian Grand Prix at uh, Zolder. Yeah, I think that was one of yours, Nigel. I think that was a, that was one of the ones where um, he was that that was the first race of the Lotus Seventy Nine. So Mario on pole bar miles clear oh, off into the distance, yeah. and 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 Ronnie worked worked his way through, and then I think had a had a puncture or a problem with a tire towards the end, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and and then charged through to second. So it beat, beat everyone that wasn't in the, the new you know painted yeah. to the ro- <laughs> to the road car, and I think yeah, that, that Nigel described it as you know Ronnie at his best. So he'd obviously got the bit between his yeah. teeth. Um, then fifth is 74 Italian Grand Prix, where, again, the Ferrari's wilted. And he, he crucially, he jumped Fittipaldi's McLaren at the start on the first lap. And they stayed together basically the whole race. Uh, uh, but he didn't, um, he, you know, he, he didn't crack. And for me, that's a little bit like the Villeneuve 81 Spanish Grand Prix race, yeah. which is these drivers who have got a reputation, oh, they were just flamboyant and they weren't thinkers and you know, made mistakes. Well... You know, if you've got a got a world champion tied to your gearbox for the entire length of a Grand Prix and they don't overtake you in the race, you're probably quite good at sustaining pressure. Um, uh, so they, that was that was my fifth one. And then 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 fourth, I'll let you help me count down the top three. Ed. Yeah, the seventy-one four. Canadian Grand Prix at Mossport. It's it's tracked beginning with M, isn't it? That's yeah, it's yeah, Monza, Monaco, 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 Monaco. Yeah. <laughs> that one's in there because I think it's a remarkable. Um, you know, he comes. It's wet race. Um, and him and uh, Jackie Stewart absolutely disappear down the road and miles ahead of everyone else. And Ronnie actually catches Jackie. And this, I think it says a lot for both drivers. I think Ronnie tried to pass him, got ahead three times, and Jackie found a way back round him again. And there's two in and throwing. And, and Ronnie claims that Jackie had said to him afterwards, well, you taught me the right line. So once he got ahead of 
of Stuart. He couldn't get rid of him. And crucially, Jackie had managed to get ahead just before they got to um, uh, uh, George Eaton to, to, to lap him. And Jackie made it through and Ronnie didn't. And there was just a little bit of contact and he had a spin. And that was it then. You know, Jackie was away. But he still finished second. He was about a minute clear of, of the next car. So they were they were on a different level that day. It's sort of striking how, how varied the types of wins are in here. Like they're not the, yes. uh, I think it shows that there's a bit of... Uh, a bit of shorthand used in the way that he's been driving. In fact, the, the number three in the list, 73 Spanish Grand Prix at Montjuic Park, there's, that, that's, that's a race that's got a bit of an air of the modern about it in terms of just give yourself a little bit of a gap and then... Yeah, the, the interesting thing, I, I'd not come across that until I'd done this because um, I knew that obviously he dominated the race, but um, apparently, um, I think it was in Pete Lyons that had done that report and uh, Chapman apparently had told Ronnie to pull out a four-second margin and then sit on it basically because they were worried about tyre wear. Which is, which is basically what every single Grand Prix leader gets told now over the radio. Yeah, so always yeah, get, yeah. get get a four second lead. Yeah, right. um, and 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 Ronnie did that. Um, but actually, there's quite a lot of tire problems and and other mechanical issues. We had more of those obviously in those days. So he actually ended up with a much bigger lead than he'd been asked to. But it wasn't because he was driving, you know, ludicrously. You know, he had been driving to the schedule, and then he started to started to lose gears. But I mean, he was miles miles ahead. So he had that one in there. That was that was the sort of the the dominant but denied. I think I think Pete Lyons called it him the moral victor of that one. Um, and then like seventy one Monaco, we we talked about. Um, Ronnie yeah, speaks well, quite well, a lot. Another race that he didn't win, but another race he didn't win. But that that one, he um, again because it's because it's Monaco. He um, he came up with some brilliant quotes about how Rodriguez was making the BRM very wide, and in the end, he forced Pedro into locking up, and he said he came out of the corner with four square wheels instead <laughs> of round ones, uh, and then he went off, and an X had been trying to pass Siffert, and Ronnie caught them and passed them both in two laps. Um, and then went off after Stewart and initially did start to reduce reduce the lead. Remember, Jackie was driving the race with no rear brakes. So again, again um, and but but Jackie responded, and then you know Ronnie finished second. But if we remember that that was only a year after his Grand Prix debut, you know, we think about Max Verstappen yeah. coming and making yeah. a big impact. You know, to overtake people and basically be the class of the field apart from the best driver in the world in, within a year of starting F one. I thought that was that's why it was so high on the list. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, actually. I just love that bit when you were talking about Rodriguez making the BRM wide. Because, I mean, these days, of course, they don't need to do that, do they? They just need to be there. No, they are wide now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The size they are. Less, less of a challenge. <laughs> well, number one, 1978 Austrian Grand Prix, uh, Osterreich Ring. That's, that's a race that basically, in my mind, everyone was basically spinning constantly. That, that's the sort of that's, the uh, that's sort of true true the, true the start i think um the reason one of the reasons that's that's there is well partly because i asked a couple of peterson fans for their lists um and that was appeared prominently in 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 them um and also because it was it was probably the most dominant weekend that ronnie i think ever ever put in he, he beat mario to well, pole it was the weekend mario could have blown it Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because he made a mistake on the first lap immediately. Yeah, um, I yeah. mean, but Ronnie was already ahead. He, he yeah. got ahead yeah. off, off the line, and and um, I mean, he was putting away when the rain arrived. Um, and the, I think he did have an off, but I think pretty much everyone had an off when the rain hit because it was yeah. a, a shower, wasn't it? Yeah. And then at the restart, it was quite a long time before the restart. Uh, I think Patrick Depay beat him off the line, and then I, I recommend you look it up on YouTube because he pulls off a manoeuvre around the outside at the Bosch curve from absolutely miles back. And, and the Bosch curve was a long, 
medium to high speed right hander banked yeah. corner fantastic corner no, it, was a, it was an incredible and, corner and Ronnie just drives completely around the outside of him but you know all, all the way and it's a long corner to go around yeah. the outside yeah. and then he disappeared at seconds a lap I can't remember what his winning margin was but it was something ridiculous mm. um, so it was a sort of a wet weather thing almost every great driver has a one, at least one wet weather sort of master drive in them and that, and I thought that was that was probably Ronnie's yeah. and of course it's interesting actually it says a lot about Peterson there's, there's one race win in here that always leaps into my mind but that, that isn't in the list and actually justifiably so but that's of course 79 but that's of course 78 Kyle Army, when he passed to Pie on the on the last lap, uh, when which, Mario ran out of fuel right of, at the end. Of yes. course, yeah. But you always yeah. think, well, if it's a last lap pass for victory, it's automatically got to be a great. Yeah. Win. But actually, when you think about it a bit more, it's it's. it's that was not- when Chapman took fuel out of Mario's car oh, on yes. the grid. He went, yeah. As says, as says, Carlin, if I run out, it's your ass. <laughs> I bet that was an interesting conversation after the race. That 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 for me is a little bit like the Button Canada win. It's the one that everyone remembers. But I mean, Jensen did require an awful lot of luck for that race to come to him. He then obviously delivered. Yeah. Well, they say he made your own luck. He made his own safety car in that. In that he situation. literally did. Yeah, yeah. He did. Yes, <laughs> having true. left having left Fernando beached on the curb. Um, yeah, yeah. But but that race, I mean, that's the race that um, Ricardo Petres was leading the arrows and uh, going away, and the engine blew, and then I think. Was he went off on oil? John Watson and Mario ran out of fuel, and he and Ronnie only really got to uh, Depay at the end because the the Tyrrell was struggling for fuel yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so although it was a dramatic, so it'd be a sort of one of the most dramatic races Ronnie was probably in. I don't think it was his personal, you know, one of his personal best because he wasn't up at the front without other people. No, 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 that's fair. Yeah, and of course, Kev, that you, you've looked at some of the other races he did as well. He was a winner of World Championship Sports Car Races. Had great success in, in F2 as well. I mentioned Monaco. F3, is there any, any one of those other wins that, that you think is worth just throwing in as well as Monaco as a, as a non, uh, a non world championship one? Uh, yeah, there were sort of two or three others that, that cropped up. There was one at uh, the Formula 2 race at Brands Hatch, uh, where he completely destroyed the field, uh, and was on the, uh, he was on the front row. He made a terrible start and he overtook. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't a weak field. The people he had to overtake to lead were Emerson Fittipaldi and Graham Hill, who he did on the same lap, and and disappeared down the road. Um, all sport got very excited about that one. And then there were two uh, Lola T two one two sports car races. He did. Um, he was called up. He said he was in bed when Joe Bonnier called him to drive the Lola Martini International Trophy at Silverstone. Um, so I had no practice at all. I had to start from the back with a ten second penalty. Got to fourth in the first heat. And then the second heat, the car wouldn't start before going out. So we had to start from the back again. But this time, without the 10-second penalty, he came through. And I think it was uh, Hesman in the uh, Chevron that had won the first heat. And he tried to fight Ronnie for a bit, but thought this probably isn't worth it and let Ronnie go. So Ronnie won the heat uh, and, uh, and and the Chevron won overall. And then the last one was the in the, 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 the penultimate outing for the famous Golf 917. Derek Bell and Van Lennep, Van Lennep uh, Barcelona. Bonnie again asked Ronnie to drive that car. And, uh, yeah, Ronnie basically was quicker than the, the 917. They did need the 917 to have a problem before he won, but they also were having an engine problem. And the view was that if it hadn't been for Ronnie, they wouldn't have been in contention anyway. So, um, yeah, they were, the, they were the other ones that, that sort of made the non-F1 list. I must say something that strikes me is, you know, um, Alonso recently said, wouldn't it be great to have a 
a race Formula One drivers in Formula Two cars, and I think it, I really think it would. I think it'd be seeing how good the F2 races are weekend after weekend. But of course, you know, we forget. I mean, I sometimes overlook it myself. I mean, in my young days, I mean, they all did Formula Two as a matter of course, and, and I'm, some of the best races I ever saw were, were just that, you know, Formula Two races, which were great thing about them was that the formula one drivers most of the aces would do them but so they were being measured against the you know the young turks weekend after weekend you go, jesus he's something do you see what he did to stuart on you know whatever um and rent even before it took for, forever for jock and rent to win his first grand prix because he didn't have the cars and then didn't have much luck and so on it took a long long time for him to win his first grand prix but for quite some time before that, he was dominating Formula 2 and beating the other Formula 1 drivers weekend after weekend in Formula 2 cars. And Ronnie was very similar. It was, you know, it took a while for Ronnie's first Grand Prix victory to uh, to come his way. But for seasons before that, Ronnie had been, mainly had been, you know, the, the sort of the dominant figure in Formula 2. Well, it's remarkable to think that while he was having his first campaign in Formula One with March, he was also busy winning the Formula Two championship. Yeah, which is it's kind of bizarre to think about it. That'd be like having George Russell now. Well, I know. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, that, yes, that's <laughs> absolutely right. But it, but it, it was exactly the same with um, you know, I mean, Rent. You know, did Formula Two to the end of his life, and that and they did. I mean, JYS did. You know, that was just it was just. Um, Dare I say it, for one reason, uh, to supplement what they were not being paid in Formula One. <laughs> Hard to believe, but it's the way it was. That's why they, so many of them drove so many different things. It's one of the things we've lost today, really, isn't it? That's why it's so interesting to watch Alonso and other cars, just to see them in different he, types he, of cars yeah, and absolutely. challenges. It's absolutely. Well, as I said earlier on, you know, about Mario, the, the week, two weeks after that awful weekend at Monza when Ronnie died, there's Mario and he wins IndyCar race on the Trenton Oval and that was what he was doing that was you know he was back and forth between Grand Prix to the States and he wasn't just going home he was going home to race an IndyCar you know and then coming back for the next Formula 1 race well that that, Barcelona, that was routine yeah that, that Barcelona 1000 kilometer race which is 7 hours which is you know two drivers that must have been quite an effort in itself but that was only two days after he'd clinched the Formula 2 championship which was also hey, during his first F1 campaign yeah, so just yeah. within a space of a couple of weeks he'd have driven three different cars in big international races yeah 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 well just to finish off because we'll, otherwise we'll go on all day there's so many stories it's very hard to do a driver like Ronnie Peterson Justice in the, the length of a podcast but what, what, what's his legacy and where do we kind of put him among the greats I know it's always difficult to rank people but I think it's fairly clear that Peterson is he's in there with the, the great small number of non-world champions shall we say and he's up there with you know your, your veal nerves and your, oh, well, your moss yeah. is kind of in I mean, that in that convenient bucket yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean on talent it's i mean i suppose because i've always believed and i always will believe that sterling is the best there's ever been i've never put as much store on the world championship as some people do and i look at I mean, as Sterling said to me, I mean, look, boy, look at some of the people who won it, for Christ's sake. So, uh, well, he, I, I, he, he had no weakness, really. <laughs> there was no, there, you know, it was, no. you could say with Peterson there was a weakness that oh, stopped I, him yeah, winning yeah, it, whereas yeah. Moss, no, it was I, I, purely I, I, circumstantial. Abso- absolutely, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, on, on talent, though, you'd put Ronnie right up there 
as you, as you were, as I would, Gilles, as I would also, I mean, well, Jochen, Jochen did win a world championship, although they never knew it. Um, but I think those three kind of, I, I tend to bracket them in my, in my mind because, um, they should have had all of them. They should have had more success than they did. Um, but they were all drivers who would just stop the audience in its tracks. And I can remember, I can remember at Silverstone, the old woodcut, pre-chicane woodcut, flat out right-hander, uh, on different occasions, watching Rent through there, um, and Ronnie in, in, uh, practice or in qualifying when they were going for a time and I was you know I wasn't working in the business and I was just I was in the grandstand I was a fan but I remember the, just the anticipation around because everybody was just waiting watching a minute and a half pass and waiting for the next time Ronnie would appear it was the same with Rent um, and it was much easier in those days of course with fundamentally hardly any downforce it was much easier to see the a difference between one driver and another through a, through a corner. You could see, Jesus, you know, he's he, <laughs> he is special. Um, so that's why I hated that O'Rouge is flat for everybody. You see, that's uh, and uh, equally, I think Ronnie would have hated it that O'Rouge is flat for everybody because it shouldn't be as a corner. As to where to slot him in, I always think I'm very similar to Nigel, but there are five the five best non F1 champions I always think I mean I think Sterling is about front by a by a margin yeah Villeneuve Peterson um, Kubica I think should have been a yeah. world champion or would have been and Dan Gurney I think is a bit underrated yeah. that might that might be just a personal thing but they're, no, the, no, they're, they're five to me that seem to be in a bit of a bracket of a lot better than their statistics yeah. tell you yeah that's the thing isn't it also statistics can't capture how spectacular you are through a corner like woodcut or something. You know, that's, that's, that's that's the that, other thing. I mean, really I mean, I think it, when you mention Ronnie, it, it's 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 not victories that come back to me as much as just memories, snapshots. Just isn't just it? The, the sight of him, thinking, God Almighty, you know, how do you do that and make it look, you know, as though anybody could do it, just sideways at 170 miles an hour. You know, you don't you don't see it. Could he ever explain what he what he did or what no, he was doing? Was he? No, no, wouldn't have had a clue. <laughs> I wouldn't have, but you know it's like it's like Jackie Stewart says about Jim Clark the thing about Jimmy was he never had any idea how good he was and he wouldn't have been able to tell you if you'd asked him well that seems an appropriate uh, tribute to uh, to end on and in fact if you'd like to read a bit more about Ronnie Peterson we've got some Ronnie Peterson content in the uh, the current issue of Autosport Magazine. Pick that up at your uh, local news agent or online. Also, please check out autosport.com, all the latest news. Obviously, we've got the Singapore Grand Prix weekend kicking off. We'll have our uh, team on the ground, including my, including myself. We'll be uh, bringing you all the latest from there. And please check out our Plus Subscriber area, all sorts of in-depth, longer-form features there for you to get your teeth into. And please check out Sister Titles, motorsport.com, and F1 Racing Magazine, out monthly. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast.
Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to chumbacasino.com and give them a whirl. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet, deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.